Well, there are four history books of the Bible that tell us about Jesus' life and his death. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each tell basically the same story and have many of the same little stories within them. But each have their own emphasis. Luke's gospel account has this emphasis. It, it likes to, to highlight the response to Jesus from the various people Jesus bumps into. Some of the responses are bad. Some of the responses are great. And I want to look at some responses tonight. Responses to Jesus in Luke 22 and 23. Kind of a survey of these chapters. And it starts out with a lot of bad responses. First, he was betrayed. He was betrayed by Judas. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, if you have a Bible with you. It says, The feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. But Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, that is, twelve apostles, the most intimate disciples. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad and they agreed to give him money. They gave him 30 pieces of silver, we read elsewhere. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray, betray Jesus to them apart from the crowd. Now why do these chief priests, why do the officers, these religious leaders need Judas? Well, because even though they've heard of Jesus, they've heard a lot about Jesus, they maybe haven't seen Jesus up close too much. The stories that record the religious leaders getting close to Jesus are here and there throughout the gospel accounts but we don't know how many of them and how official those ones were, how high up in leadership they were. They need Judas to say, that's the guy. They need Judas to say, I know where he is. I know where he'll be. They need someone on the inside to actually get to Jesus. And Judas is not only pointing Jesus out. Judas is essentially the first witness to these crimes. He's saying in essence, not only where Jesus is, but that he agrees that Jesus is bad, that these charges against him are true. And he sold his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. One of his 12 closest friends, one of the apostles, kind of special forces for disciples. That's what apostles are like. He's one of the 12. And he turns Jesus in, knowing that turning him in meant Jesus' death. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Verse 48 of chapter 22, Judas walks up, kisses Jesus, and Jesus knows what that kiss is. Judas, you're betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss? You're being sneaky about it, like I don't know what's going on? You didn't walk up and point, you didn't say that's him right there? but you pretended like we're buddies still, like we're close, like you love me? He's betrayed. Secondly, he's arrested. Jesus comments on the way that they came for him at the arrest. Look at verse 52. They came for him with swords. And Jesus says, you've come out with swords and clubs like I'm, like I'm a robber? 
Like I'm just a, a buffoon? Like, like I'm one of those guys that fights back? Jesus says in the next verse, I've been around town. I've been very open about what I'm teaching and where I'm teaching. And you come to me with swords? Like I'm going to fight? He's arrested. Regardless of how he's arrested, he's arrested. But he's not only arrested, he's arrested with swords. Common criminal. Have you ever spent any time in the back of a police car? Hopefully not, but maybe you have. I remember getting pulled over once when I was a kid in high school for driving way too fast and spending about an hour in the back of a police car as my friends drove by and honked and waved. And it was, it was really embarrassing. That's the closest I've come to jail, the closest I've come to being really in trouble with the law. But here's Jesus. He's arrested. He's treated like a common criminal. Third, he's framed. You see, in chapter 23, he's framed. The charges against him are bogus. Look in verse 2 and 3. They say, he's been misleading our nation. He's been forbidding taxes, which totally isn't true. You can go and find Jesus' teaching on taxes, and he says, give to Caesar whatever is Caesar's, and give to God whatever is God's. He says... This guy here, this religious leader, says of Jesus to Pilate, he says he's the Messiah, and that's a king. So you can see what he's doing here. He's trying to incite some sort of nervousness in Pilate. What? A a another king? Another king besides Herod? Another king besides Caesar? And he also says in verse 14, he's... One, I'm sorry, verse 14 of chapter 23, one who incites the people to rebellion. He's misleading the nation. He, he's teaching uh, to not pay your taxes. Real insidious stuff. You, you see how silly this is? He says he's the Messiah, which, by the way, means a king. Don't you think that's trouble, Pilate? And he's trying to rule the people, to rile them up, rather, toward a rebellion. But even Pilate, and then Herod afterwards, we'll read those in just a bit, those accounts. But Pilate and Herod both insist, and multiple times insist, that these charges are without warrant. And that's part of the equation of Jesus' rejection, too. It leads us to the fourth thing. He was dismissed. Dismissed. You see in chapter 23 that Pilate thinks Jesus is no threat. He's not even to be treated seriously. There's that exchange. The religious leaders say, he says that he's the Messiah, and by the way, that means he thinks he's a king. And Pilate says, king of the Jews, right? Yeah, king of the Jews. So then he asks Jesus, you think you're king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is, just as you say. And then Pilate says, yeah, I got no problem with that. Because the key phrase there is, of the Jews. Oh, king of the Jews? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, go be their king. <laughs> yeah. It's dismissive. And then he's all too quick, verse 7, to pass Jesus off to Herod. He finds out that Herod's in town. And Herod oversees this, this area from which Jesus comes, Galilee. 
And Herod's the king, and so Pilate passes Jesus off to Herod. Herod then gets Jesus, asks some similar questions as Pilate did. You're the king? The Jewish king? He concludes the same thing that, Jesus, uh, that, that Pilate did, that Jesus is harmless, and that these claims from the religious leaders are false. And what does he do? He sends him right back to Pilate after beating him up some. It all speaks to Jesus being just a little pawn in the complicated issue of the Jews and the Romans between Jewish ecclesiastical law and secular Roman law. Jesus is just a nuisance in that game that's been being played now for for hundreds of years. And fifth, he's mocked. He's mocked. You see that in chapter 23? Before before Herod sends him back to Pilate, he and his soldiers have a good laugh at Jesus. In verse 11 of chapter 23, they put a robe on Jesus and they mock him. Mark's account gives a little more detail at this point, where we see the guards there taking a, a crown of thorns, like this here on the cross, and not just putting it on his head. Mark makes this Very clear, they twisted it. They put it on and they twist it. And Mark says they kept beating his head with a wood stick. And they were kneeling down in front of him in between the blows to mock him. They mocked him as king. And ironically, he was the king. They didn't know it. They didn't really see it. But it doesn't mean he wasn't the king. He was mocked. Sixth, he was rejected. He was rejected by the crowd, a crowd of his own people. This crowd in Jerusalem there for the Passover weekend lauded him just just a week before. Just six days before, they lauded him. We see it in chapter 19, what we call the triumphal entry. They say, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's our king. He's God with us. And now this crowd despises him. You know how this works. You've read this, I bet. Pilate wants to free Jesus He doesn't want this blood on his hands. He thinks that Jesus is an innocent man, but he also wants to please the Jews at this time. There's there's always the possibility of an insurrection that that happened before in that Jewish-Roman relationship. And so Pilate brings up that legal clause that he's supposed to free one prisoner at this time of the year. He's supposed to throw the Jewish people a bone this time of the year and let one of their prisoners go free. But they insist that it's not Jesus. Tim read that for us. They say, give us Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? Barabbas, it says, had been already convicted, guilty of insurrection and murder. Insurrection was one of the things they were trying to pin on Jesus. They're not okay with it on Jesus, but they're okay with it as it comes to Barabbas. In Matthew 27, Matthew's account of all this, he shows that this crucifying crowd is is not just mistaken about what's going on. It's not that they prefer Barabbas and don't know Jesus, 
Because in Matthew 27, that crucifying crowd can quote Jesus' teaching. They mock him like this. You said that you could tear down the temple and in three days build it up again. (laughs) Go for it. They quoted Jesus' own teaching from John chapter 2. What they didn't realize is that as they yelled that, he was in the midst of doing it. As they yelled. You said you could tear down the temple and build it up in three days. They didn't realize that his temple, the body, was being torn down. And in three days, exactly, he would raise it up again. Now what changed in a week's time for this crowd to go from, Hosanna, this is our king, to give us a murderer? Give us a big societal problem in Barabbas. Someone given to insurrection, but crucify Jesus. What changed in a week's time? Well, in a week's time, Jesus cleansed the temple. He threw over the money changers. He threw over the the people who were selling goods for sacrifices in the temple. He repeated his prophecy that the temple and the city would eventually be destroyed in judgment. He insisted on the final resurrection of the dead, which some Jews didn't agree with. Some did, but that's another point. He again repeated that he was going to die and be raised, which if this is your king and you're expecting him to take over this this nation that's in your land, he's not going to be a very good king if he's a dead king. He's going to die? He keeps saying that. Why? And they focused on the death, perhaps, and not the resurrection. He also tied his resurrection to his return at times. He said, I'm not only going to be raised, I'm going to come back again in glory. (coughs) He says things like this during this week. In Matthew's account, we read Jesus saying, Tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you religious leaders will. Oh, that'll go over well. He even calls King David his boy. He says that he's King David's Lord in Matthew 22. So you can see how things change. You can see how the crowd joined in at first on the disciples' praise when that donkey carrying Jesus came into Jerusalem. And you can see how in that next week so much would become clear about who he is and what he came to do, that it would become just what John records for us. John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. Also, he was condemned. He was condemned. Pilate gives in to the cries of the people despite his own conviction that Jesus is innocent, despite the fact that he knows that this is wrong, In John's account, chapter 19, Pilate even asks the crowd, you want me to crucify your king? He said he's the king of the Jews. If he really is, I'm going to be crucifying your king. You want me to crucify your king? And listen to how the people respond. We have no king but Caesar. Now, you have to understand how shockingly blasphemous that would be for a first century Jew to say. I mean, even if they're going to acknowledge Caesar as a king, 
Caesar knew enough of Jewish theology to know that they were supposed to say, but God is the king. And there's a king coming. And now, playing the political hand, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate goes along with it despite the injustice, and Christ is condemned. And then he's crucified. Crucified, which... You know, if you've been in church long at all, that's a word you're familiar with and not surprised by. You're not shocked by it, but, but we have to think about the violence of it. We have to think about what was part of it, the flogging and the scourging that led up to the crucifixion, which yanked out chunks of flesh from the back of the one being scourged and flogged. Significant blood loss, shock almost always happened just from the scourging. And then once he's finally to the place where he'll be nailed to the cross, he's nailed through the wrists and through the feet with giant spikes of what we would call railroad ties. And normally death would come through asphyxiation. The one being crucified would then be so exhausted and so tired they couldn't any longer stand up, lift themselves up on the actual spikes were in the holes of their arms and in their legs. They couldn't any longer stand up to get a breath of air. When they hung there, they couldn't breathe. And when the muscles wore out and when exhaustion set in and when they passed out too many times, they died of asphyxiation. There's tremendous shame and humiliation in the the cross. They were often naked. The people... The crowd knew their role in anyone's crucifixion. They were, go, they, were, they were there to go and watch the spectacle and participate in the shame. They would spit. They would yell. The one being crucified would often defecate or urinate or vomit. And then notice, Notice here in Luke 23 the summary descriptions that Luke gives us of the various characters involved. In verse 34, you've got the guards gambling for his garments before he's even dead. You've got people staring, it says in verse 35. Staring, there's no other word for it there. They're staring, they're gazing at him. And not because they're sad or, or thinking, what did we do? They're staring Watching him die. It's watching to see if he'll pull any stunts, do any tricks, if the miracles are true and he can do one now. And if not, then surely this wasn't it. This wasn't him. The rulers are sneering, it says in verse 35. The soldiers are mocking in verse 36. In verse 38, it says there's a sign over his head that says, The King of the Jews. And then once he's crucified, he's mocked again. This time by criminals. We call them the thieves, the two thieves on the cross. But there had been two things that these guys had done, just like Barabbas. They'd been involved in insurrection, and they were murderers. I don't know why thief became the most popular way to describe these guys. These guys are thieves. These guys are rebels. These guys are murderers. And they're right alongside Jesus, almost signifying that Jesus' death is just like, well, 
one of three you have to get done that day. And they mocked him as they're hanging there. They mocked him as, as they're fighting for their own breath, right? Remember, hanging there meant you couldn't breathe so well. And to, to, to breathe, you had to lift yourself up on these spikes. You don't talk. You don't waste breath if you're hanging there on a cross. And yet these guys have the energy to lift themselves up and yell at Jesus, get us out of here if you can. Yeah, right. Saved yourself. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? They mocked him. And by the way, this is all part of the plan. This is why he came. This is, this is all what he intended to do. He came to suffer and die. That's been so clear in our recent study of the gospel according to Luke as a church. We've been going through this book. We've been seeing these hints that Jesus has been showing one after another that he's going to Jerusalem and there he's going to suffer. He's going to die. It's not, it's not something the New Testament as a whole doesn't acknowledge. In fact, the phrase, the sufferings of Christ, becomes kind of a recurring theme in the whole New Testament. It has to do with the abuse and the mocking and the pain and the death especially. And the Bible doesn't celebrate his death as an end in itself, like you would celebrate the death of a dictator maybe. But it celebrates its death somehow in some ways. It tells us the death, the sufferings of Christ weren't just unfortunate, weren't accidental, weren't just one of many martyrdoms that year. His death tells us something about us, about our sin, about his love, about what salvation is, about God's plan, about his holiness and his justice. And only when we rightly see those in the cross will we do what Paul says, where he glories in the cross. Glory in the cross. How do you glory in this thing we've just talked about that is so hideous? Well, because of these verses. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption. We've been redeemed by his blood. Or Colossians 1, that we've been reconciled in his body through his death. To be presented holy and blameless. Or Romans 8, which tells us that God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, which is proof that he'll give us all things, all spiritual blessings. Isaiah 53, back in the Old Testament, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging were healed. You hear the substitution going on in those verses? We deserve the chastening. We deserve the scourging. We deserve the wounds. We deserve the piercing. We deserve the crushing. And Christ stood in our place. He bore our sins. In his body on the cross, by his wounds we are healed. The cross, the ugly, nasty, dirty, bloody, hated, despised cross is what it took to save you. It's what it took to save me. 
The only Christian hope, the only hope for the world is the ugly, bloody, nasty cross because we couldn't have been saved by something prettier, something more glamorous, something more sophisticated. It's a reflection of our sin. It's a reflection of God's judgment. It's a reflection of how far his love will go to reach us, to cleanse us. But you couldn't have been saved by something prettier. It took death. It took suffering. It took rejection. He died so that we might live. He was beaten so that we might be healed. He was bloodied so that we might have peace. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. He was despised so that we might be loved. He was forsaken so that we might be received. He suffered so that we might have peace. He took on judgment so that we would be declared righteous. Listen to how it's put in John chapter 11. Actually, Caiaphas, the high priest, the same high priest who's involved in all of this interrogation of Jesus, these trials of Jesus in Luke 22 and 23. Back in John chapter 11, Caiaphas said this. He said, talking to his brothers, the other priests and the other Jewish leaders, he said, don't you take into account that it's expedient for us that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish? Doesn't it make sense, he said, that Jesus just goes away and goes away quickly. We get him out of here. We kill him. That's unfortunate. It's unfortunate if we have to make stuff up in order for it to happen. But it's for the nation. It's for the people. It's so the people don't perish. And then John writes, he didn't say this of his own initiative. But he was prophesying. He didn't know it, but he was prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but in order that he might gather together the children of God into one who are scattered abroad. John tells us Jesus died for the nation. Just like Caiaphas said, it's expedient that one die so the nation goes free. John says Jesus died for the nation, not only that nation, but all nations. He died that we might go free. It's like Barabbas in this story is like an analogy for the whole thing. He's an analogy of substitution. Remember, they say, let Barabbas go free and Jesus is crucified. There's a sense in which we're all Barabbases. We're all murderers at heart. We're all rebels down deep in our souls. We've, born, we've been born into a rebellion against our maker. Jesus died that we might go free. If you say, well, doesn't anyone actually believe this, though? In the story, you went through a whole list, Ryan, of people who are against Jesus, people who aren't for Jesus, people who don't believe in him. Isn't there any hope? Yeah, let me list the people in Luke 22 and 23 who believe in Jesus. Peter, 
who denied the Lord, remember? He denied the Lord three times. Peter's faith is there, but boy, it's shaky at times. Kind of here today, gone tomorrow. Not completely gone, but sure broken the next day. And, and then it, it says that he repents. He, he weeps bitterly after he denies the Lord three times. And so his faith is frail, it's fickle. It's bold today and shy tomorrow, then bold again the next day. That's Peter. He's one of the believers of Christ. Secondly, there's the criminal. The criminal who's next to Jesus. One of them on the, on the cross there believes in Jesus. But I don't know if you've thought about this before. When did he come to faith? You say, well, I assume some point between the trouble he was doing and before he got to the cross. I would think that too, except Matthew 27 says that the robbers, plural, crucified with Jesus were hurling insults at him. Plural? Do you know what that means? That means that Matthew's saying something about what happened before the other one, later on, is defending Jesus. Before the saved one is defending Jesus and saying, look, this man's innocent. Who are we to yell at him? Shut up. And then he starts talking to Jesus. Something must have happened between a time when he was hurling insults from the cross with his partner in crime and then another moment where he defends Jesus, believes that Jesus is righteous, believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and believes that Jesus has the keys of eternal life. He got saved on the cross. His heart turned on the cross. Another person or people who are believing in this account here, the women. You see Luke littering references in Luke 23 to the women who come out to see Jesus, who believe in his name, who are there taking care of the body. And that's not that remarkable to us, but in their culture, first century culture, it's remarkable that that Luke would keep referencing the women and their faithfulness and at times even noting that the disciples fled, the rest of them fled, they weren't there. You say, why is that remarkable? Because in their culture, a woman's testimony couldn't be used in court. If you were trying to write a defense for Jesus' death and resurrection and that these things really happened, you wouldn't start by citing women. In those days, I don't agree with it. Don't throw rocks at me. I'm not agreeing with it, but it's remarkable that Luke puts it this way, like it actually happened this way. The women believe. So so look so far. You've got Peter, the denier, believing. You've got the criminal on the cross believing. You've got women believing. And we've also seen in Luke that tax collectors, the worst of the worst in that culture, prostitutes believe, lepers believe, a Samaritan believes. Jesus came for the lowly. Jesus came for the broken. Except there are two other people who are in Luke 23 who also believe. One's a Roman guard. Something happens and he sees Jesus as the love of God come down. God in the flesh, righteous in all his ways. And he believes. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Wait, someone from the establishment? I thought Jesus was a non-establishment guy. We already established that, right? 
He's not establishment, isn't he? He goes for the lowly. The lowly go after him. There's a relationship there. Yeah, and yet a Roman guard sees Jesus for who he is and he believes. And there's one more, the rich man in the story. Joseph of Arimathea who gives Jesus a grave, puts the body in the grave. He's a rich man and he's a follower of Jesus. What a bunch of ragtags. Welcome to church. That's the body of Christ. We got a rich guy there. We got, we got this former IRS agent here. Notice I said former. No. We got women all over the place. <laughs> That's a great thing. We see Jesus offering his life for those who recognize their need. So here's the test. It's not whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It's not whether you're a woman or a man. It's not whether you're part of the establishment or you're anti-establishment. Do you hear these words and find them hopeful and life-giving? Here's what Jesus says. It's not those who are well who need a physician. It's those who are sick. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. So do you see yourself a sick sinner? And if you say no, then I, I say then Jesus isn't for you yet. And I pray that your life gets harder so that you see your need. I pray that your righteousness runs out. Your righteousness shows itself to be empty. I pray that your hopes upon which you fix your dreams, your wants, your desires, your longings, that they, they, they fall apart. They dissipate in your hand like the sand that they are. I pray it happens so that you would see that you're a sick one in need of a physician and you're a sinner who's in need of repentance. If you believe that you're that, then you're ready for Jesus who says, I've come to save. And he did. He came. He came. And he died. And he said, it's finished. And he died in the place of all those who would ever call on his name to recognize that they need him and that he is able and willing. So bow with me if you would. In just a bit, I'm going to pray and that will end our service. And like we do sometimes these Good Friday services, we're going to do this this year. We ask you to leave quietly contemplatively, somberly. We treat this a little bit differently than other services throughout the year. Normally we encourage you to stick around, to eat, to talk, to shake hands, meet new people. Not, not this service. I encourage you to go, to think, to pray, to ponder who this Christ is and how you relate to him. Now, if you're not a Christian, after the service, come up front if you'd like to talk. For counseling or for prayer or for Q&A, whatever, there'll be people up front that would love to talk with you if you have questions or maybe you're even ready just to, to say, all right, I'm ready. What do I do?
Otherwise, let's go in a spirit of sobriety and even heaviness that they killed the Lord of glory. They put to death the Prince of Life. And then let's come back Sunday morning in one of our services to to leap for joy that this Christ is risen. He didn't just die. I said Wednesday that we're, yes, walking ourselves through the drama of this week. We're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those who were experiencing it the first time seeing it from their eyes, but we do it as those who are peaking. We know the end. We know how, it, how the story plays out. And so while we try to imagine what it was like for them so that we're not used to the story and we think it's not a story, but it's, it's just a fairy tale or, or something we're supposed to tell our kids, but so we know it's a story. We walk ourselves through that story, and yet we do it not not as those who don't know. We're not like those who think his death is the end. But let's leave here tonight pondering, what if it was? What if he just died? Paul tells us, you're still in your sins then. And we have no hope. That means that when we die, we just die. So this better be true. Or Paul says we're fools. We're fools to believe it and fools to live in light of it. If it's true, then let's live like fools. Fools for Christ. So Lord, I pray you'd help us tonight to go in careful thought and prayer. And so I pray for two things to happen here in in various people. Either that there's great conviction and uneasiness, restlessness for those who haven't yet found rest for their souls in Christ, who don't yet know that Jesus died for them, who don't yet see themselves as sinners in need of repentance or sick, in need of a doctor. We pray for those here, Lord, that are Christians, though, that they they would leave from this place confident in the historicity of Christ's death, the finality of Christ's death, the victory of Christ's death, the freedom of his death, the personalness of his death. Lord, help us to see Christ, our Savior, more clearly and to walk in him as we should. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Good night.